out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the indie band from the 80s, just for a change. It is the one and only The Loft, who I recently spoke to their guitarist, Andy Strickland, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Exciting news, Cherry Red Records has put out a new compilation of the band, which features a double CD, and it's going to also have... Um, it's got great sleeve notes and lots of demos and Janice Long sessions and a live session from the living room. Yes, the famous club that was once run by Alan McGee. And um, their first single, Why Does the Rain, was uh, released on Creation Records 1984. I do believe it was their seventh album or seventh single from Creation Records. Anyway, look, you're going to find out about this in the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject of the early formative years. Andy, it's over to you. Um, similar sort of time, really, as you've just described. I had a, I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you, but I had an older brother and he, um, he started buying, we didn't even have a record player in our house when we were growing up until I got to about the age of about 12, I suppose. And then my brother, who was three years older than me, started buying singles and they were mainly T-Rex and Slade. And um, so when he wasn't around, because obviously I was banned from touching them, when he wasn't around, I would uh, I would play them to death. My God, you wouldn't believe what you just said there was so resonated with me. I, I almost wanted to butt in, but I didn't because that's the listening skills that I've developed. But yes, I had an older brother who was seven years older and um, he was into prog rock. This was in the 70s. And I and he said, don't ever play any of my records. And you go, right, OK, I won't, Colin. And then when he left the house and you saw him go down the street or the pay, I lived in the village, the country lane, you'd sneak in and just put them on and listen to them and then go, oh, you know, don't mess about. Make sure you just don't touch the touch the vinyl, use the edge, you know, because yeah. it was all very because he would then come back and look and make sure they were still filed in the same way. So, yes, the older brother and the don't go into my room and play my records. Of course. Yeah, it was, it, it was odd because my brother had um after he bought the first couple of T-Rex singles, he went back and bought some of the Tyrannosaurus Rex LPs. Nice, nice poetry. And, and, from, and that just sort of blew my mind a bit. I couldn't, I couldn't really put the two bands together. You know, if you listen to Hot Love and Jeepster, and then you went back to Mark playing an acoustic guitar and some bongos and singing yes. some really strange things about wizards. And, you know, it was, it was very odd, but it, it, it made me it sort of opened my mind a bit and made me think oh yeah okay there's something here that I haven't explored yet I should probably I, get, I need to get involved with this. <laughs> well yes absolutely I know the, just the the record titles themselves are fantastic yeah. I can't quite remember it but it was when my people were fair and wore yeah, stars. And had stars in their hair and yeah yes and, and then there's lovely clips of John Peel on the perfume garden when he was on radio whatever Caroline, I suppose, and, um, you know, reading out those little bits of Mark and poetry and sort of talking about the perfume garden, making yourself a badge so you can identify yourselves on the streets or the clubs that you can form this community. And that was when John Peel had the bizarre vocal that he changed a bit later on. But yes, obviously... his voice did change, didn't it? Radically changed. <laughs> <laughs> Two or three times. I... I know, it's a very weird moment. You're thinking, which one's the phony phone? Yeah, so that was quite cool. And it was interesting because you also mentioned 
your, your parents didn't have um, a record player, which they had sold theirs in when my parents got, they got married in the 50s. So they, I think, were that working class generation that sold everything and didn't have any debt. And then, you know, we didn't have a record player. And then one came into the uh, uh, sort of in the 70s. And, you know, then records started to appear randomly. And there were some dreadful records as well. But, um, but yeah. my brother had these uh, prog runs, which I thought were brilliant. And then he also had Deep Purple and Black Sabbath, which I thought was amazing. So, um, so where did you grow up? I grew up where I'm sitting tonight, which is on the Isle of Wight. Blimey. So were your parents at all influenced? I know everyone must ask you this. Did, did the festival have any impact on your house? Um, not really. Um, my parents were, you know, they, they, weren't, they were too old to be involved in that or interested in that. My mum is a musician and a singer, but not, in, um, she's a soprano, so she wasn't, in, you know, she wasn't in, they were, definitely weren't interested in rock music. Or psychedelic um, drugs. Yeah, but I can I do remember very clearly being about I don't know eight or nine years old and fishing at the end of Ride Pier with my brother where the ferry comes in, and just one that summer, um, so it would, well it would have been sixty nine and seventy, just being totally bemused by these hordes of long haired hippies pouring off the ferries to we weren't I don't think we knew where they were going, um, but they were just you know obviously you know, the the population of the island doubled. Um, yes, you know, there's, there, there are some fantastic little clips, aren't there, of um, old yeah. generals talking about the sort of the, the what's he, he? I always remember there was one lady who was eccentric and oh, it's marvelous. And then another, ma yeah. another man was talking about the body politic and people screwing in the hedges and ditches and I don't know. Yeah, so, yeah me and my mates, were, we, were, we were far too young for it. But I have got a friend who I later ended up, funny enough, in a band with down here who was a bit older than us and he, he went. He certainly went to the um, the nineteen seventy one, so he got good he got good memories of all that. Um, but yeah, you can. I mean, you drive past the site now; it's still you know it's the same day on Afton Down is still there on the west side of the island. Yeah, um, it's quite extraordinary to think that there were one hundred and fifty thousand people sitting there um, waiting to hear Jimi Hendrix, and, Bob Dylan, The Doors, Joni Mitchell. I know yeah, the, re yeah. the revolution was all there, wasn't it? Right on your it doorstep. Was. That was very exciting. We just had a village fete with sort of large vegetables yeah. to look forward well, to. Well, funnily enough, the, in the years after, because the festival got sort of banned in 19, after 1970, and from then, for a good 15, 20 years, really no bands played on the island at all. Music was banned. <laughs> that was not going to happen again. <laughs> yeah, until, um, until punk. We didn't, you know, when we got we, a couple of bands, came, the Damned came over and played at a holiday camp, and the lurkers played at the town hall. Nice. Um, we did. We we always had to go to Portsmouth for our for our gigs. So in the rock rock times, it was Portsmouth Guildhall who you know had everyone from Thin Lizzy and Bebop Deluxe and uh, Wishbone Ash and you know Quo mm. everybody. Oh, um, fantastic! Well, we love the and Quo. Then, and then just as we hit sort of sixteen and seventeen and were looking to go to more gigs and things, we, you know, punk hit and. Um, the smaller clubs in Portsmouth had the Clash and the Buzzcocks and the Undertones and the Ramones and so we you know we went we used to get the ferry over see them and then you'd have to wait until the first ferry to come back the next day so it was it, it was a bit of a trek. My god that's a, that's commitment there are people in America who have been, you know done interviews with bands and they were just saying well when we used to go and see a band we'd have to drive eight hours in a <laughs> in a car full of us taking drugs and drinking and just to see you know your favorite band and then yeah. I felt a bit guilty because I thought god I used to think 
I'm not going to go two hours down to London and back, but um, on the train. Because it was always horrible when you got home at sort of four in the morning, feeling a bit yes. underwhelmed that you, you know, perhaps I won't do that again. And then you wake up the next day and think, well, perhaps I will. Who knows? Yeah, especially if you had to go to school the next day. <laughs> yeah, that was always a bit tricky. But yes, so when did you start thinking, actually, I'm going to learn to play the guitar? Well, we had a, we didn't have a record player, as I said, but we did have a piano in our house because uh, my mum was a singer still is a singer and um so I used to bash around on that and could pick out a tune and you know um but hated the idea of having piano lessons and my mum was always saying you should have piano lessons and I definitely didn't want to do that but um a friend of mine's brother had a, a guitar that he didn't play an acoustic guitar which I didn't realize at the time was probably the worst guitar I've ever played in my life yeah but I um I I asked if I could buy it from him because he didn't want to, he didn't have any interest in it. And he offered to sell it to me for a tenner. And my dad said, I'll give you a fiver to go, you know, see if you can get him down to a fiver. Nice. So once I had that guitar, I was, uh, I started, uh, I signed up for guitar lessons, but, but it was all sort of classical stuff. And very, very quickly, my guitar teacher realized that every time she wasn't in the room, I would be learning, I would be playing a T-Rex single or a Bowie single. And so very quickly she said to me, do you know what? I don't think you you should be learning um play this style of guitar. I think you, you know, you should look for someone else to teach you. But I didn't I never got anyone else to teach me, but I just I was just obsessed with it um from then on and uh, just taught myself to play basically. Yes. Okay. So what was your first gig you went to and your first record you bought? Uh, first record I bought was California Man by The Move, I think, um, which was a, was a precursor of, you know, ELO and all that sort of stuff. But it was, um, it was Roy Wood. Yes. Um, and it was a real rocking tune. Um, I think my brother, I think I gave my brother some money to buy me a single once and he came back with another T-Rex single, which he, you know, so I funded his T-Rex habit for a while. Mm. Um, the first gig I went to was probably, I think it might have been Thin Lizzy at Portsmouth Guildhall, actually. My God, that's so cool. The first proper one, when they had, when Jailbreak came out. Blimey, O'Reilly. So then, yeah. did you, did you, when you got to 16, did you continue on, you know, in sixth form, or did you leave at that stage? I did A-levels, but I was in a band. We had a band, we had a sort of punk band down here on the island. We were called the Confusers. And um, there were four or five places you could play down here and there were about half a dozen bands all the rest of them were sort of to us were sort of you know they were older they were much more accomplished musicians we were the sort of we were the sort of kids that some of them didn't didn't take kindly to but they all played um old sort of prog stuff and wishbone ash and yes and you know the doobie brothers and stuff and we we started playing the Stranglers and the Buzzcocks and the UK right. subs and the Skids and all the bands we loved. So we would, we had a, we rehearsed like mad and we had a thing that if a record came out by, from one of those bands that we, that we really loved, um, by the next Saturday, we would play it live. That was our thing. Blimey, you were and disciplined we got, as young people, weren't you? We were, we were pretty driven. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that was a great little band. Yeah. Really good. Yeah, but I realised that you know being stuck on the Isle of Wight, it was never going to uh, amount to very much. So 
eventually I, I, I wangled my way into college in London purely so that I could get up to London with my guitar and um, find some people to play with. So it wasn't even a polytechnic, it was a college. Well, it was a polytechnic. It was is what, what is now Westminster University, but then was the Polytechnic of Central London. My God, that's not where Pete teaches, is it? It is where Pete teaches, yeah. <laughs> that's a what I, I've been to Pete, and I know he, it kind of slightly sounded familiar, and I thought, God, it can't be. It is. It's like a Hollywood script. Yeah, and, and even weirder, <laughs> the day I, I moved up to London and was in a hall of residence in the centre of London, um, that place was deserted. I, I got there quite early on, I think it was a Sunday lunchtime or something. This would be September, was this like September 1980? Yeah, it would have been, yeah. God. And um, I heard somebody coming up the stairs and I looked over the stairs and there was a guy walking up the stairs carrying a guitar case. And I thought, wow. And um, that was Bill Prince, who plays bass in the loft. And he, so he was the very first person I saw on my very first day. Mm. And here we are, you know, 40 odd years later, and we're still making music so yeah well absolutely when when you get your yeah what's those, one of those docudramas coming out that, yeah that's all gonna yeah. That, that's gonna just write itself isn't it so then when you so what were you studying by the way well it was the much maligned media studies excellent but Classic. in those days it, it was actually um well it was very difficult to get on the course in those days for a start but it was it was quite a practical course so we had a tv studio at college we had john peel coming in lecturing us because uh, we were right near the BBC. Yes. Um, and loads of people on that course went on and either went to work for the Beeb or went into Fleet Street or, I mean, Danny Kelly was on our course who's written the sleeve notes. Yes, I noticed. This album, you know, and went on to edit NME and, and Q and is now a fabulously successful broadcaster. Um, so it was back in, back then it was a, um, it was very much a, if you can get on this course, well done and b there's a very good chance you'll get a job at the end of it so it was it was a very different thing to what i think media studies is these days yeah and also you would have got a full grant wouldn't you so it would have been quite a nice little number absolutely yeah yeah we were all on grants that's how i bought my guitar fantastic yes i know people my brother even sort of managed to save money on his grant that was in yeah. the 70s. but i mean it was almost hard because you could also claim dull money at Christmas and Easter and the summer holidays. That's right. You've got about 13 quid a, quid a week, something like and that. And hires a benefit. And I, I remember people going, oh, I can't really be bothered. You know, it's quite a lot of effort. You've got to go to the local town and do that. And what's the point? You know, it's like well, casual. But anyway, you know, when you're living the highlight of the 70s, yes, it's all good stuff. So then, I mean, did you sort of hit that period, that first year of being a student with great, you know, was it toga parties and just endless gigs? It was definitely endless gigs. Yeah, the first weekend... I was there. Uh, the first night I, I got there, we went off and we went to see Rick Brigham Panic. And then I think the next night, we, we, I've got it in a little diary somewhere. The next night it was um, uh, the au pairs. Then, then all the college sort of freshers things happened. Yeah, you got a whole um, week of that. Yeah, and we went to, the, we went to Yulu, I remember, and um, headlining their freshers night was U2. Um, then like, you know, then the next few days we were down the Marquee Club and it was the Rosillos and, you know, yeah, it was just, I just threw myself into it and went to as many gigs as I could because coming from the island when I couldn't really go to anything. Yes. Suddenly there it was all on my doorstep. My God, Isle of Wight seemed a long time ago. So when did you, when did you form your first band in, in that period? 
which one when i got to london yeah or yeah would, well it would have been um when bill and i started playing together would have been about 80 well 81 um so you know just before we met up with pete really so we um, a friend of mine was in a band already up in town they'd all moved up from portsmouth and they had a squat with a rehearsal room so bill and i used to go around and um just sort of mess about really between us and play played these songs which sounded very much like the gang of four and things like that mm. um and they had a mate who was a drummer who wasn't doing anything called andy not so we got andy in and we were for a few months we were a three-piece and we were called dead men don't ski mm. very Good early voice. 80s now <laughs> and um and then we went to went to i said to bill once oh, a friend of mine is playing a gig in um at the angel in a pub up there i think it was called the pied bull and that was a guy called nick dingley who ended up he was ended up as the drummer in hanoi rocks and he right. died in a car crash with motley crew and yeah but we went to see his band and they weren't on and um but funny enough there was another band on and the guy who was singing was pete astor um and bill and i just chatted to him afterwards you know and said you know we like like the sound of your voice and we're, we're, we're getting a band together. Do you want to be in it? And he said, no, not really. Um, so we gave, swapped phone numbers and he gave us a ring a few weeks later and came around, um, I think as he says now, he, he basically came around to tell us that he wasn't interested. But he brought a guitar with him and we just started playing and that was that really. Right, blimey, right. That's when that's like when people decide to leave some social media site and they always make a big song and dance about leaving rather than just going. Go, I'm going to leave... Facebook and you go okay that's great thanks for telling me that just go then mm. <laughs> well anyway at least he had a lot of two peas to uh, say look I'm kind of coming around to tell you I don't want to be in in a band that doesn't quite exist yet so when yeah. did you have your first rehearsal well it would have been it would have been probably 81 and Pete had Pete always had loads of songs um and we just very quickly sort of settled into um learning them really you know he he had he had he had a set full of songs and um and we all liked the same sort of stuff so we sat around listening to television and velvet underground and orange juice and you know we loved the early go-betweens and all that sort of stuff um so was it at that stage kind of did you feel quite committed and serious about that idea of being you know forming a band and yeah we were we, we we've talked about this it's amazing how how much hard work we put into it from day one we were we were rehearsing you know several times a week we were always record trying to find cheap ways to record stuff we did so many demos in funny little bonkers studios and hired four track machines and i remember we we, we made we did a recording at a boxing club or something or a boys club up in crouch end and anywhere we could um the only thing we couldn't do was find somewhere to play because uh, that didn't really exist, you know, unless you were, although there were hundreds of venues across London, it was still then very much sewn up by agents and promoters. Yes. And we didn't know any of those people. And we didn't know how to how to get in touch with any of those people. So yeah. we... And, you, um, and were you sort of starting to get aware, and I'm not quite sure the timeline here, but there was the, the fame, there was several famous clubs, wasn't there? I mean, really famous. <laughs> famous in the world of indie pop but there was the living room wasn't there the the famous yeah room. and there was also this other one which was um yes alice in wonderland 
Oh, oh yeah, I'm aware of Alice in Wonderland. I'm not sure I ever went there. I think we always found that that was probably a bit too gothy for us. But we were certainly at the first night of the living room. Were you? Yeah. Um, and you? we went every time it was on. We went because you know just not so much because of the bands, but the people. We you know we uh, I think Dave Morgan, our drummer, had played the club before that, which was called the Communication Club. Right. Um, which Alan did before the living room, Alan McGee. So by the time the living room started, Dave said, you know, let's all go along to this, you know, you know sort of stuff you'll like. And we, we fitted in with the crowd, although we weren't Scottish and we had trouble <laughs> understanding what Alan was saying to us. And after a couple of months, we gave him a demo. But at the time, we were called the living room as well. And, you know, Alan sort of said, well, yeah, you could, you can, you know, I'll give you a support slot. So it was people like the TV personalities, um, the Three Johns, the Nightingales played there quite a lot. Yes. Um, and we were just delighted to be offered a gig. And um, we quite often got used as a, a support act for, for bands who were coming from outside of London because they borrowed our gear. <laughs> so that's how we got our feet under the table at the living room, really. And then we did that for a few months. And then in sort of early summer, 1984, um, Alan said, would, would, would you fancy making a single? Um, so, you know, that was the only place we played, really, the living room. You know, there right. Wasn't, there wasn't and really I guess you've been played. really aware of people, you know, the John Peel show with his famous kind of ability to sort of break, not break bands, but, you know, sort of give people that sort of moment of sort of feeling like you're making some progress. Yeah, of course. You know, we watched, we listened to Peel, you know, religiously. And even down, when I was down on the Isle of Wight, we listened to Peel every night. Um, but when we made the, the first Loft single, Why Does the Rain?, um, and we got some sort of promo copies. We sent them out. We would have sent one to Peel, but we also sent one to Janice Long, who was doing the Radio One evening show before Peel around the, at that time. And she latched onto it immediately. And she she rang us up and said, "I love this. You know, tell me more about the band." And we we discovered putting together the timeline for this compilation that in the first three months she played it nineteen times on Radio One. My God, that would have which is. You know, staggering. Really staggering, actually. Because I guess you would have got, well, somewhere down the line, someone would have got some play for that, wouldn't they? Yeah. And, or um, pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so he'll, he'll, um, he'll played it a couple of times, but he, 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 um, he famously said, well, you're a Janice band. You don't need me to play you, really. You know, and Janice offered us a session. So we did our, we did a 1984, we recorded a Radio 1 session. Um, we were the first creation band to do that. So... We were opening a few doors to some of the other guys as well. Well, yes, absolutely. Because I think Creation, they started, I can't remember the first ever single or, or first release, but there was obviously the Jasmine Minx was one of their first ones, wasn't it? Yeah, wasn't we it? used to play with them. But I think the first single was um, The Legend. That was Jerry, uh, eight, 73 and 83. That was the first single. Yes. Strange, a strange single. Now, ours was the seventh, I think. I think we were, I think our first single was 007 or 009. I can't remember now. And at that stage, I mean, did you, I mean, because I've sort of done a lot of interviews, I mean, did you sort of understand the, the process of sort of ownership of music and publishing and signing record deals, or was it just a little bit more sort of, I'll look, just put a single out and I'll, I'll release it for you? It was a bit of a mix. There was a, I remember there was a musician's union handbook and it had, a, it had these sort of chapters on mechanical royalties and publishing. So everyone used to pore over those without really understanding what it was we were reading. But in terms of um, 
a deal and certainly with creation there was never anything written down it was just a sort of handshake and a you know I'll, Alan would pay up pay for the studio and the manufacturer and we would split everything 50 50. yes that's basically how it's how it's always remained but we never ever signed anything no interesting because I guess at that stage as well because you mentioned you too I mean because you had the punk period and that sort of then the next bit which was you know bands like Gang of Four and Magazine and then you know there were Simple Minds and then obviously you too and then that moment where the Smiths appeared and and I thought it was a bit of a moment that things changed again really. Definitely yeah I remember Bill got the first single um, and brought it home we, we were sharing a house in like a little cheap um, rented house in Leighton by then in East London where we used to rehearse and Bill came home one day with, the, with the, I don't know if it was Hand in Glove or This Charming Man I can't remember now but he put it on and we just said oh this is this is just fantastic it just you know it was it was sort of familiar but brand new at the same time and it was just sort of yep that's that'll work um yeah it was that was a big moment because yes. I think up till then we people like us we'd, we'd always champion sort of orange juice and and the go-betweens but they never had that you know they worked really really hard to scrape into the charts whereas the smiths it was pretty obvious it was just going to go bang yeah i mean and there was the other band that a lot of people often mention because they often you know mention orange juice and the go-betweens and the june brides as well with phil wilson who was another band who i don't know if they were a little bit a year or so after that but they were also quite i don't know they yeah they to... were around they were around at the same time as us in fact i remember when um when we got on TV, which we did in in early in eight, 1985, again thanks to Janice Long, we were on the on the Oxford Roadshow on the BBC, and um, the June Brides manager was called Simon. He rang rang me up, and uh, they'd already been on the cover of the NME and stuff, and we we hadn't really had much press at all. And uh, he said, "Can you? How on earth do you get on the telly?" You know, um, and I said, "Well." like with everything the loft does really we just get asked and um and he he clearly thought there was some secret that i wasn't telling him so <laughs> so to me look andy you know we're all in this together i want you know i, I want to get the june brides on telly so what do i have to do how do i go about it and i said well i've got no idea you know they just rang us up and said do you would you like to come play your new single on this tv show and we said yes that there was no secret but clearly people thought there was there was some shenanigans and you know there were there were palms that needed to be greased etc but it's yeah. never we, we we were totally unaware of, of all of that if it was happening so shopping trips to Woolworths buying hundreds of singles <laughs> yeah. or something strange really did yeah. you ever get asked to play on the tube at all no we didn't do the tube we did um we only did the Oxford Road well I say the only did the Oxford Road show the Oxford Road show was pretty massive at the time it was a sort of Friday evening yeah um sort of eight o'clock on BBC two um and the Smiths played it, you know, um, everyone did it. And um, the night we were on, we, we were on with uh, the very 80s, this, we were on with Ultravox, uh, the Thompson Twins, Bronsky Beat and China Crisis. God. And, and we were the sort of young kids to watch. You, know? you were the young kids who weren't, because all the rest were quite sharp band. Exactly. Oh yeah, they were they were well established by then. So we were we were Janice's sort of band to watch in this slot where you know new talent was shown. And I guess I guess for a yeah. lot of people, I suppose I'm, I'm a bit you know it's always nice to feel like you've discovered a new band rather than going oh yes this is you know just jumping on the bandwagon I suppose. So I could yeah. imagine Janice Long quite enjoying sort of um, thinking this band is going to make it. 
this is going to yeah. be a moment. She was, you know, Janice has been not exactly written out history, but her show was incredibly important. And um, understandably, people talk about John Peel, you know, till the cows come home. But um, Janice uh, did sessions, you know, live sessions, and loads of bands who were around at that time got a bit of a break because Janice supported them. Um, and also Kid Jensen did uh, did sessions at that time as well, you know. So there were there were other people around other than Peel, even though he was obviously you know the godfather, as it were. Yeah, and also what was quite interesting, I can't remember who the band was, but someone said, you know, it was for them that was much better bit on Janice Long because there was more people listened, and so it sort of gave them a bit more of an audience. So um, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So, she, so. she was earlier on in the evening, so um, you know. And can you remember much about recording? Why does the rain, by the way, and and how much it cost? Yeah, I can tell you exactly. I think it's it's in the booklet in the in the CD. I think it was one hundred and eight pounds. Um, for the entire session and we did three songs we did why does the rain we did like which is on the b-side which is a track i really really love i think it gets overlooked a bit um and we recorded winter which subsequently subsequently turned up on a creation compilation lp right. a few months later we had no no idea but um yeah we did it we recorded it in a tiny studio in south london in sydenham and um yeah it was 108 pounds for the and who the was your producer for that well joe foster produced it officially um i'm not sure he knew too much about what he was doing but he knew a bit more than us so um <laughs> <laughs> he, he turned up with a i think he'd read the joe meek biography so he turned up and had some sort of fairly wacky ideas about recording things one way or another and playing them backwards through speakers and then re-recording them some of which we went along with, some of which we said, no, even we know enough, Joe, to know that's not going to work. Um, <laughs> but it, but it, yeah, it, it, it all worked out. I mean, it was, you know, it was quite a sort of downbeat sound, but uh, very different to the second single. But um, we were we were thrilled, obviously, just to be in the studio making a record. Well, absolutely, because it's quite it's quite an amazingly distinctive guitar sound on it, hasn't it? I was listening yeah. to it the other day. It's quite wild and freeform, isn't it? Yeah, well, you're talking about why does the rain or the solo in the middle of up the hill and down the slope? Oh, sorry. Yeah, right. Yes, up the hill and yes. I was listening to it the other day, thinking that guitarist is really. It's um yeah, it's pretty bonkers. It was Pete basically just um, just sort of he had this around that time he he had that ability to sort of play a bit. It was almost like punk jazz on guitar, and um, that absolutely nailed it on up the hill and down the slope. It was. Uh, yeah, pretty magnificent. We we had um we we got some people some quotes in from some famous musicians <laughs> for a comp compilation we did before this one. And James Dean Bradfield from the Mannix was kind enough to say some nice things about us. But one of the things he said was that he 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 had to send off mail order to get up here and down the slope, and he spent many weeks in his bedroom trying to learn to play Pete's solo. And he gave up. He couldn't. He couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's kind of you know, it's kind of interesting. I was listening. I was just playing it, you know, a week or yeah. so ago, thinking, "Wow, that guitarist is really." It's uh, out there, yeah. it and it sounds it. brilliant. It was really that one. I mean, that that record was. I think we spent more like five hundred pounds on. Um, yes. We did that with John Rivers in Levington Spa, and that oh, was, the uh, famous John Rivers. Yeah, yeah, he did felt, and you know, he, he engineered um ghost town by the specials and yeah he was great he was great he, he just did enough of the producer's job to help us 
make a great record without making it turning it into some big 80s production you know oh god that 80s production it killed david bowie's next two albums did it after let's dance <laughs> it was um it's interesting a few years ago they re remastered it and they took out that 80s vibe which was quite a relief and some of the songs actually sound much better than they did at the time which yeah the 80s production of that kind of trevor horn-esque kind of sound was awful yeah massive drum and things yeah it just had a, a vibe everything sounds a bit like tina turner doesn't it steam yes. and all that so look when that was kind of how many did you print up of why does the rain or I think Why Does the Rain initially would have been like 100 copies and it very, very quick because it got played on the radio a lot. I think Alan stepped that up to 500. Um, but I don't know if we ever did any more of them. I know there were two pressings because I was talking to somebody recently about the difference between the first pressing and the second pressing, which they got very excited about, which, which was, I did, this is really records ball stuff, but it was in the paper of the little foldy creation sleeve that we used to sit around Alan's front room folding the sleeves together right put, putting them in the plastic uh seven inch you know bags god that and sounds the, so sweet doesn't it yeah i remember pete complained at the time you know he said we're we're musicians we shouldn't be folding our own sleeves mm. but somebody had to do it and uh so, it was uh, the spirit of blue peter let's face it <laughs> it was it was very much like that yeah you get you know adam adam would ring you up and say that singles are in can you come round? <laughs> tomorrow evening and fold the sleeve don't come around at seven o'clock because we don't have our tea until half past six so we go around <laughs> his little his house in turnpike lane and he'd have boxes on the living room floor and we just set to folding all the sleeves up and did you get a sense i mean obviously when things are happening at the time you don't really it's only looking back that you get some sort of perspective but you know there was a kind of a bit of a scene and you mentioned the squat scene and then there was also places like the ambulance station which became quite famous because i did an interview with couple of people who lived there who were in a band called the hangman's beautiful daughters yeah a take on the uh, um oh my god that band the hangman's beautiful daughter actually isn't it that's the, no what was the um the scottish band was that called them i just did an interview with rose from the band as well uh i don't know no, sorry. This is a sixties band who played in Woodstock. Anyway, that's that was a conversational cul-de-sac. But <laughs> yes, so what was yeah? So on that scene of of, of sort of yeah. London in that time of hanging out, being a student, going to squats, going to all these little mm. clubs. Did you get a kind of an excited vibe from it? Yeah, we went. To, we played at the ambulance station. Um, I remember we we played at the ambulance station a couple of weeks before we did our TV appearance and. Um, the guys from that petrol emotion were there and i'd been a big undertones fan and um i remember um john o'neill sort of saying oh i hear you're or sean i should say um saying i hear you on the tv you know uh, good luck and all that sort of stuff so that was good um but i also remember when we played the ambient station after the gig i had to find the guy who was supposed to be paying us and he was sort of up under the roof somewhere in a sleeping bag and you know, it was all very um very uh haphazard shall we say but they were they were good they were good you know mostly it was parties mostly yes. you'd go to parties and listen to the same mixtape and in different parts of, of east london it seemed to be what we did an awful lot of yeah well it, it, it all sounded very exciting and then yeah. when when so you did the second single at that stage were you still had you been approached by you know management or anybody saying look i can see potential here well 
this is an in, this is something I've always found interesting. Is I think you know the reason we ultimately split up in such a spectacular fashion was that there was only ever the four of us. There was we had apart from our friends like Danny Kelly who used to help us carry gear up the stairs at the living room, um, and Alan very very light touch. We didn't really have anybody who was advising us to do anything, and and I think that's partly because. Um, we seem to be doing quite well on our own. I mean, to get all those plays on Radio One and get on TV and get invited to do a national tour with Terry Hall and things, I think I think there were probably people thinking, well, I don't know, I don't know what I could offer these guys. You know, um, they seem to be doing all right as it is. Um, so no, we never had a manager, we never had a sound man, we never had a roadie, we never had a agent. And did you play any gigs out of London? We only in places like where where sort of fans were running them. So we. We played a couple of times down in Bristol because the Chesterfields um, and Martin, who ran Sarah, um, ran, um, uh, what are they called? Uh, can't remember now. I'll remember in a minute. The Flatmates sub, label. The sub, Subway. Subway, that's yeah. it, yes. Um, he, he was doing gigs on a boat in Bristol Harbour called the Thecla, which was called the Mission Club. Um, there was Jeff Barrett down in um, Plymouth putting gigs on at Ziggy's. And... Um, and also, in just before we called it a day, we went up to Glasgow and played at Splash One, which was being run by Bobby Gillespie and his friends. Right. So there were some of those gigs, but they were they were they were very far and few between. Yes. So no one said, "Look, what you need, guys, as a manager." No, we got taken out to lunch by Mike Allway, who was trying to get us to sign to do some records just for Europe on um, Les Dis de Crepuscule. Um, and we were quite excited about that. But that was the only time we ever got schmoozed was Mike Allway, um, sort of early 1985. I think he, he realised that things were happening. Mm. But I think Alan, Alan probably would have got more involved, but the Jesus and Mary chain took off to such an extent that they took up all his time. Yeah, this does happen, doesn't it? This yeah. does happen. This is tricky. So you'd... Because, you know, putting this compilation together, there is a lot of material on it, isn't it? For, for a there band that, who wasn't around for that long. <laughs> yeah, no, somebody said to us the other day, how can a band who at the time made two singles have a, have a double CD compilation, which is their third compilation? So, yeah, there are 30 tracks on this. Um, but uh, that does include a whole live gig from the living room. Um, but we obviously we came back together in 2005 and we went into the studio and did a few tracks, some of which had never been released before. So they're, they're on there. Um, and we've also got Gideon Co. BBC Six Music Session that's on there. That's never been out before. Yes. So there's plenty on there that hasn't been released before. Um, and you have got your favourite track, Winter, as well. Winter's on there, yeah. yeah. And, and, and what was the, you know, you've got a song called Emily. Is that about anybody in particular i i don't know you'd have to ask pete that because that's you know pete wrote all the songs um i don't remember there being an emily around but it might it might have been somebody else and he just liked the name yeah interesting so then 85 was this the year was this the time when the band had their moment where it split up yeah, we eighty five was a was a crazy six months from Jan, from January. We were we were incredibly busy. The radio session was was put out. The uh, we went into the studio to record up the hill and down the slope. Then we got the TV exposure. Then up the hill down the slope came out. Went to number one in the indie charts. We got 
tour with Terry Hall's band, proper, you know, big, big venues tour, played all over the UK. My God, they were and, um, and on the last night at Hammersmith Palais, we split up on stage in front of 3,000 people. My God. I, did, I remember hearing about the Eagles splitting up once on stage where <laughs> they knew, you know, the guitarist was kind of saying to the other guy, I'm going to kill you. And, and, he, and he just dropped the guitar and ran and never was seen. And then, you know, decades later, they reformed. But so what happened? How did you? So did you have a feeling before that gig that things weren't going well? Well, we knew it was going to be our last gig because Pete had, had rung Bill up a couple of days before and said, I'm just really need to say that um, I'm, I'm I, I think the way he, he he said it at the time was basically, I'm going to get, I'm going to stop doing the loft, but I'm going to keep the name and I'm not going to use you or Andy. So it was basically kind of like a, you guys are sacked sort of conversation. Nice. Um, and if you don't want to play the Hammersmith Palais on Monday, I'll, I'll understand, you know. So my, my response back via Bill was, you, you know, we must do this gig at the Palais because we knew so many people who were coming to it and it was like the culmination of the tour and everything, you know? Um, so we knew, we knew it wasn't that that was going to be our last gig. Um, but what I did was when we, when we came to play our last song, which was up the hill and down the slope, I announced it was our last ever gig. And, um, had you seen David Bowie and Ziggy? Uh, <laughs> no, I hadn't seen it, but I am aware of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, because they, they, the Spiders from Mars didn't know it was their last gig, did they? But we we did know it was our last yes, gig. Yes, I know. The rest of the band were a bit confused, <laughs> weren't they? But, um, yeah, that was a bit terrible. So, yeah, so did you understand why Pete wanted to? Because he took Dave Morgan with him. He took Dave and they became the Weather Prophets. Yeah. Um, but at the time, no, I didn't understand it at all. It seemed It seemed the most ridiculous, wasted opportunity that anyone could possibly imagine that a band... It was very, very much on the up and about to, you know, the next logical step would have been we'd have recorded a really great album on yeah. creation. Um, so at the time, no. And then we didn't, uh, basically be between the four of us, um, we split up into two camps and we didn't talk to each other for about 25 years. So it was a huge, um, you know, loss in, all, in, in lots of ways, musically, you know, friendship wise. Um, yeah. Did you feel like the band could have done with, um, I know, it's, uh, I don't know, is it Copeland, Stuart Copeland from The Police, he said mm. that when they reformed, they really needed to have band therapy because him and Sting weren't getting on. Did you feel like you could have done with band therapy at this stage or a manager? Yeah, we, no, we definitely needed a bit of therapy and a bit of conversation. So I think, you know, Pete's, Pete's sort of said since that he behaved really badly because he basically took his guitar off and walked off stage in the middle of the last song and that was that. But um, what we weren't doing as, as four young men was we weren't equipped with, uh, we didn't know how to really communicate with each other. So um, there, what we needed to do was either get in a room and have a fight or um, shout at each other more. We didn't do any of that stuff. Right. It was all tight-lipped tight and carry on. And, you know, the, the, there were things that a manager, I think, by then would have stepped in and sorted out with us and for us and helped us to, Yes, yeah, on the therapy front. Yeah, but we have said I think Pete watched a documentary about Metallica, and I think they all, all had their own therapist. <laughs> and, uh, and and I think you know the idea was if if we'd had that, maybe we would have gone. But then maybe people wouldn't have remembered us for doing something so stupid as splitting up on stage at the Hammersmith Palais. 
Yeah, well, it's a, it's a tricky one, really, isn't it? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a strange number. I've not, I mean, with an indie band at that stage, I never sort of know, because when we were growing up and watching, you know, people being interviewed in the 70s, especially, you know, musicians used to say, well, I'm into the band because it's sex, drugs and rock and roll. Obviously, people said, stop saying that a few decades ago, because you, yeah. you should be in prison for what you've just, some of the things you've done. I mean, were indie bands in the 80s, what were they like in the terms of, drinking drugs and everything else was it kind of or because it all seems like everyone was a bit serious and neurotic but obviously people were we did like a drink and some of us like to smoke um but it was plenty of drinking and, and and in the early 80s in london that whole sort of studenty squat scene was very much the drug of choice was speed and you could get very cheap very pure speed which helped you stay up party you know well, I, when I say partying, I, any young people listening, I don't mean the same sort of partying as, you know, it wasn't raving or anything. It was sitting around listening to the Velvet Underground and yeah. discussing the go-betweens. Um, and talking about recently. possible nuclear annihilation, really. Yes, it? all that stuff, you know, Green and Common, and all, you know, CND, <laughs> Rock Against Races, you know, that yeah, was all going red on. Wedge. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, there was plenty of, um, we liked to drink, but we did take the music incredibly seriously. And we, we, you know, we, we studied how other bands had done it. And we, for instance, I don't know if you know how familiar you are with the inner sleeve of Marquee Moon on the television. There's a shot of the band sort of, but it looks like they're rehearsing. And we, we, we sort of had that. Everyone loved that album when we had that. And we just thought there's a band, there's four guys there and they're working really hard. And um, we, Pete was writing so many songs and we were spending, you know, a lot of time uh, rehearsing them and arranging them and playing them live that uh, yeah we couldn't we couldn't have done it if we were off our heads all the time but we did we did like a drink after we'd played yes well yes when you were young I mean how did um the band reform or how, what was the, the the process of the the sort of communication and then sort of reforming again yeah well as I said there hadn't been any for about 25 years and oh. um which was a shame really but there you go um and then Cherry Red suggested that perhaps we might, they might like to do a compilation of everything we'd ever put out at that time, which was back in 2005. So um, we, a few phone calls were exchanged and we all met up at Pete's house up in Crouch End. Um, and nobody killed each other. And we drank tea and um, People had brought along bags of cassettes and things and said, well, I, I don't know if you remember this. We did this recording. And and um, so we sat there for an evening and had a bit of a laugh and a catch up. And and I just remember at the end of the night, somebody said, so if we do this, are we going to play live? And there was a bit of a pause, you know, and um, everyone sort of went, well, we could do, I suppose. And the, the compilation came together and we decided that we would play live so we got in a rehearsal room and it was just brilliant yes did you have in that moment did Pete sort of say anything just to say look because it was kind of him who broke the band up well I think we're all we're all culpable but Pete made the decision to take his guitar off and storm out yeah um, um no at, the, at that moment no there was no discussion about it but when we did that first compilation we all wrote and text to go in the booklet and we all explained how we felt about what had happened and the overarching 
feeling from everybody was what a damn shame that we'd put our friendship on ice for so long you know because we're all we get on when we get together now which we do at least once a year mm. we we get on really well the four of us and um the thought that we basically didn't talk to each other for 25 years and you know we're all old fellas now it's uh it's a damn shame you know things like that shouldn't happen yeah absolutely so then i mean two things i mean a, the weather prophets become quite popular in the 80s, don't they? They become a yeah. real darling of John Peel. I mean, how did that sort of feel when you sort of had to listen to that or kind of, oh, look, the front of the enemy, there is, there's the band that I could have been in? Well, I didn't take much notice of them, to be honest. I, I sort of avoided them. I was a bit harumphy at the beginning because they re-recorded Why Does the Rain? And I, and I, I, sort, I didn't think that was right. <laughs> I mean, it is Pete's song, so he can do what he wants with it, but... I, at the time, I thought, you know, if you want to go off and, and start a new band, that's that's fair enough. Um, so why are you recording old lost songs was, was kind of my, so I was a bit peeved at first. But um, pretty quickly, we were all in, we were all getting other bands together. So, you know, Bill started the Wishing Stones and um, I got I got the Caretaker race together and we got signed to Stephen Street's label. So, you know, it was it was. Quite quickly, it was sort of, oh, well, move on, do something else. Yes, and dear old Stephen Street, who who was the man of the 90s, really, wasn't he? Well, he's still going now, isn't he? He did, yeah, you know, you name it. I, I was at a party um, a couple of years ago. Stephen came, it was my birthday party, and Stephen came, and one of my one of my son's girlfriends said to him, oh, hello, I'm um, Nat, who are you? And he said, I'm Stephen. And she said, oh, what do you do? And he said, oh, I'm a record producer. And she, she's like 18, you know. And she said, oh, anyone I'd have heard of. And he said, uh, the Smiths, Blur, Kaiser Chiefs, Cranberries, you know, New Order. <laughs> and she went, oh, OK, OK. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He should have yeah. started with the Bradford, really, shouldn't he? And seen he probably should. He probably would now, yeah. He'd go Bradford. Yeah, so, so your enthusiasm for music hadn't waned at all at this stage. No, not at all. I, just, I thought, right, OK, well, I'm not going to stop, clearly. Um, and people were saying, well, you know, this is a chance for you to get back writing. Because in the, in the loft, um, Pete wrote all the songs. Um, so this was an opportunity for, for me and Bill, you know, go to, to, to start writing again and, and get, you know, and sort of step up and be the front man as well. So um, that's what we did. And, Bill made a great album with the, with the Wishing Stones and I made a decent album on Stephen's label. Yeah. And that was, you know, we toured and played in Europe and stuff. That was great. The Hangover Square on Clandestine. That's it, Records. Hangover Square. Yeah. Right, which is kind of... And you also filled in for the Chesterfields in 87. Yeah, they were... Because we got to know them when I was in the loft and they used to put us up. If we went down to the West Country sometimes, we played with them and stayed with them. So I, I you know, got, got to know them really well. So when I when the loft split, they uh, they said to me, you know, would you be... if we, They rang, just rang me up one day and said, we're, we're short of a guitarist. We've got some gigs coming up, in, including playing Glastonbury Festival. Um, would you be able to... Do you fancy stepping in? So uh, I thought, well, that sounds like fun. So, uh, yes, I did. God, and, um, 87 was the first time I ever went to Glastonbury. I was very ah. excited because Huskadoo were playing on Friday afternoon and I got there all the way from Norwich and they'd already been and gone. I went, oh. ah. I, thought yeah, I can't remember what day we played. Um, I do. But, 
Yeah. There was an indie stage, wasn't there, with those? Yeah, cars. stage two, I think it was at the time. Kind it became of, the it? NME stage, didn't it? But um, yeah, and they, then I think it was just called stage two. We played in the middle of the afternoon. Fantastic lineup of bands, and I think there was that sort of stone circle made out of cars as well, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was amazing. That was good, and, and I'm still doing stuff occasionally with the Chesterfields now. So we did a tour. We went to New York in 2016 and headlined the uh, pop festival over there, and uh 2019 we did a bit of a uk tour and um we're writing stuff now which hopefully will be a new album so. yeah because i did an interview with um it must have been with Sia is simon uh, yeah and, and he talked about you know the band and also about davy and and, and that was so kind of yeah. heartbreaking it was awful so yeah he said it was very difficult doing it again but the family were quite happy well not happy but you know thought it was yeah nice. they're giving it giving it their blessing so yes. yeah simon was definitely not sure whether he should be doing it at first so he went out and sort of tentatively tentatively did it but i i was one of the people that said to him you know i think if you're going to do this you should you should do it just you know do it properly and yeah so um yeah we've, we've written uh we've so far we've written about 15 new songs so we're, we're starting to record some demos this weekend actually that's fantastic. That's what lockdown does for the creative juices. You yeah. also um, a part-time music journalist. What, who, who did you work for or write? I for? worked for Record Mirror all the way through the eighties. My um, God, all those free CDs and no free records. Well, free records for, at, at first, yeah. Um, that basically was, you know, I did that to fund my my uh, my band stuff really. So I was always freelance. I was never on the staff, so I could was flexible enough to say well I'm not going to be around for the next two weeks because we're doing whatever yeah um, but yeah I, I ran the sort of independent section of, of record mirror um so all the bands that you know all the bands that you that you've interviewed and stuff and who, who sent their singles in they, they all used to come through to me and I, I had my own sort of two pages that I could do what I wanted with mm. and and That's also a... got to travel around a lot because in the 80s the record companies would send you all over the world to interview people so it was good fun. God, that must have been exciting. Now, on your on that level, what would you say was the best year of music? The best year? Cool. Yeah, when you, when, you, when you look at the, you know, your because your, actually I've got 87 as probably the best because the releases were brilliant that year. But that's me just being a bit biased. But I just wonder if you think, looking at that period, especially as you as a journalist, did you sort mm -hmm. of think, God, I'm really on the zeitgeist, nothing's getting past me. And then suddenly you thought... God, I don't really understand who Billie Eilish is anymore. Who yeah, is... I suppose. I suppose I, <laughs> I, I start Billie Eilish. That's when you realise you're a bit old. <laughs> I started to to lose a little bit of interest when it when it got a bit dancey and a bit ravey. There was only so far I could go with that. I mean, I'm a massive um, Northern Soul fan and motor, you know, and soul soul music fan. But so so I am, you know, that sort of music. I, I love it. I, I ran my own Northern Soul club in Walthamstow for years. But the that sort of rave thing, that late eighties, early nineties stuff that Creation started putting out was that got a little bit too far far to me. I never really got into hip hop and stuff. So um, you know, I don't know about particularly. If, you know, if, when I think about particular years, I tend to go back even further and go back to sort of seventy seven, seventy eight because of all the great punk stuff that was. Yes. That was so exciting, and I was the right age for that. Yeah, I know. It's just, I don't know. It's a pointless thing, but it's something that keeps me amused. 
thinking about great years. Well, I think 86 yeah. was brilliant, but then 87 just seemed to be. And then there was, for me, I've got that indie world as down between 83 to 87, which is the years of the Smiths, and then the ecstasy world. Then you had that rave period, and yeah. then, you know, which was all right. And then you had grunge, and then you had that kind of, you know, thing. There were always other bands still doing their thing, but there was definitely yeah. a feeling when the Smiths broke up and the party had finished, really. You know, that was like, okay... Um, yeah, they were important. Is it? I mean, that's one of the reasons it's such a shame. You know, the the, the Morrissey legacy is, is such a shame because they were such an important band, and they for all sorts of reasons. And um, and you know, now I I kind of I don't know, I don't really play the Smiths anymore, and it's partly you know, and I I think that's a shame. Um, yes, I know. We can, we, we all have to manoeuvre or uh, navigate. Yes, it's a tricky one. That, that tricky. <laughs> I think yeah. to be honest. The Smiths, okay. Solo work, that's when it feels a bit odd. But then, you know, I did an interview with the um, bass player of the Glitter Band last week. And, um, oh, yeah. And because uh, I, you know, because I, I probably mentioned right at the beginning that, that was one of my formative, you know, periods. Yeah, me too. I loved Gary Glitter. I mean, those were great singles. The sound <laughs> of those singles were just sensational. And, and you know, I often thought about the Glitter Band, which have now got a compilation out on Cherry Red, like everybody yes. has, don't they? Uh, I'm not sure if they're going to sell more than a few hundred because, um, I mean, they are the glitter band. But yeah, Gary's... my ex-wife was a my ex-wife was a big glitter band fan. Well, which always struck me as strange because she was quite she was massive sort of Smiths and but she even when she was a kid she was obsessed with the glitter band. In yeah. fact, I told her recently about that compilation that you just mentioned. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, she could probably book them for a. Village Hall Disco, actually, because <laughs> um, I think I think they're still they are still going. He was he was a delightful chap, and, and it's funny because I did sort of think I wonder how he's gonna how we're gonna manoeuvre this, but he just mentioned Gary as if you know that's like yeah, yeah. Okay. you know there was no. Well, of course, <laughs> Gary lives on the Isle of Wight now, so um, oh does he? My God, well he's in, he's in one of the prisons. Oh right, perhaps not collaborate with him. <laughs> I didn't realize, actually, I had no idea, and I didn't want to bring all that up too much. You know, I was kind of curious if he mentioned yeah. it. But oh, right, so he's—I didn't realize he was even in prison, actually. Yeah. Bloody hell! Terrible, terrible times. Yeah, I did slightly Google and see what he was up to, but then I got bored and just went back to Spotify and played. You know, do you want to be in my gang? And thought, oh, they're so. great. That that was it. You know, rock and roll part one and two. I remember oh. those at the youth club and just the sound of them. That was the thing that that grabbed me when I was you know at that formative age was just the sound of some of those records not necessarily who they were by or whatever but you just I was just in awe of the of the sound um Stephen Street and I both love um some of those early David Essex singles like Rock On yeah it's funny I listened to um a Michael Stipe interview recently and he he mentions Rock On as being this like what a song you know what, what how unusual as well you know it's such an unusual record and you know, to put out as a as a single, you know, you think, yeah, that is. Hmm. Yeah, you have to be one good-looking fella to get away with putting a record out like that. But all the same, you know. But then you realise he was probably in his thirties. He wasn't even that young, was he? But he, you know, he was. Um, it was just, it was just a stunning record. Anyway, look, Christ, now we we're just reminiscing about the seventies. Now let's get back to the eighties. Now, so yeah, so why did you finish the caretaker race? Um, Caretaker Grace came to an end because of the collapse of the Red Rhino distribution. Oh, those bastards. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it just coincided. We, we, you know, we had the album out. We were writing stuff for, an, for our next record on Stephen Street's label. We went on tour in Europe. 
we came back from that tour and I got married and um, Stephen just got in touch and said, um, we've got some really bad news. You know, Red Rhino's gone. So we're not quite sure what we're going to do with the label. And then, it, and then everything else seemed to go under as well. And um, so it seemed to be a natural end point. So there was no, there was no falling out or, or anything like that. It just other factors seemed to be suggesting to everyone that maybe it's time to call that a day and do something else. So um, yes, I know the, the the whole collapse of Red, uh, the Rough Trade, and then Red Rhino, Red Rhino. yeah. And lots of other late, you know, things went down, which was just yeah, horrendous no, for the, for so many different people and individuals. And, well, funny enough, you mentioned Bradford just now. I mean, obviously, Stevens sort of um, reignited his foundation label to put that new Bradford record out. So that's that's nice. Yeah, absolutely. Back from he, the ashes. he always said that it felt a bit unfinished. That you know, they they were they had that great potential, and then it just kind of spluttered and died, didn't it? Yeah. You know, so um. Yeah, and then so yeah, that that felt like the domino effect. So then, what what's kind of roughly, roughly, you know, that's happened since then? That was that was sort of nineteen ninety, wasn't ninety one? Yeah. So um, so were you amazed going back to Alan McGee and creation? Mm. Because because most record labels they have that bit like bands, especially the independents. You know, they you know they was the Pink label and Vindaloo Records and yeah. And um, yes, <laughs> I don't know. Who's the one in Scotland? Alan Horn. Um, yeah, postcard. Postcard, not 50. You, you haven't seen my T-shirt. Look, I've got a postcard T-shirt. Cheesy, crazy. That's beautiful. Yeah. Nice. That is, that's, <laughs> I, I've just got a black T-shirt. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, it's so you know, because not like Sarah Records came. I know they were a bit later, but they, they you know, they did brilliantly. And then, you know, it's like they just went. But Alan like a like a a Duracell bunny he just kept drumming didn't he and didn't he slow did. down and then you know like those indie days including Momus which I thought was brilliant and then my bloody Valentine which frankly would have given me a lot of sleepless nights and freaked me out because I can't cope with that much stress <laughs> and sort of difficult people and then you know bingo oasis and and everything else that went with it so um yeah were you amazed when you saw that Never amazed that Alan's involved with stuff because he's got such an amazing uh, enthusiasm and drive and energy and he's still got it, you know. I, I don't know whether he got a second wind when he, you know, went through his sort of near-death experiences or what, but, um, uh, I, you know, you, a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time, isn't it? But when you've got the sort of energy and enthusiasm and, and frankly, absurd belief that he has in, in buckets, I think it... it it gets you through a lot so I was never surprised I thought it was very Alan that when um, Oasis played Nebworth he couldn't get into the to his own sort of VIP area that he paid for because he didn't have the right pass and I love all, I love all that sort of stuff so, <laughs> I um, didn't know that story yeah but uh, yeah no ne nothing that Alan does would surprise me and he you know he's still he's still out and about now isn't he Ran raving about new bands and so yeah on. absolutely so, and uh, doing it I know it's it's just amazing I think most people and us you know have interviewed a lot you know you can just see them thinking I just could do with a nice job with four weeks holiday now and a relationship with somebody and just a bit of a normal life and you know some there are just like 0.001% of the world who have just got that something else which is just yeah. so driven so um amazing yeah and have you seen him lately or spoke to him 
I haven't spoken to him since for about 20 years when he took me out to lunch when he had an office in Primrose Hill and I was running a big music website called Dot Music and he wanted me to put all the pop tones artists on it. Um, so I haven't seen or spoken to him since then, but uh, we, we, we sort of follow each other on Twitter and stuff like that. You know? Yeah, a oh, nice um, one. Instagram yeah. is one of his main ones. So yes. look, so you were just saying you're still, you're recording with the, the Chesterfields now. Yeah, this weekend we're going into the studio down near Glastonbury actually and doing doing a couple of days, see what Fantastic. comes out of it. It's interesting that area because there was all those kind of anarcho-punk bands came out of Yeovil and Somerset, which was like <laughs> Blythe Power and Zones and I don't know, Factor yeah. on acid, possibly. I might have made that up actually. But yeah, there was quite. People, I think EMF came from down that way as well. Um, but oh. yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a lovely part of the world and um, we always like going down there. So, God, um, you can go up the Glastonbury tour and see the chalice well and get cosmic and sit yeah. on the ley line just before. So you've got all the material written, it's just a matter of bashing it out. Yeah, well, this is, uh, yeah, we've got 15 songs written. So we're going to go in. Uh, for, the, for two days to do some demos see what comes out and then um we've got some ideas about where we might go and who we might use produce a, an album which will probably well, it'd be nice if it came out later this year but i wouldn't be surprised if it tipped over into next year now but yeah. uh, we'll see so is the band you simon Rob helen Harry? helen stickland who's no relation to me i'm strickland with an r oh I'm, my god that would have been yeah. i would have thought and you <laughs> It's a bit Fleetwood Mac. I didn't it looks a bit, yeah, it looks like a spelling mistake whenever you see it written down, but it is. I mean, how bizarre is that? Yeah, and Rob Parry, who's from Yeovil, on drums. Beautiful. Who's the vocalist then? Well, there's three of us, me, Helen and Simon, all sing. I mean, it's like the yeah. new speakers. <laughs> yeah, we are a bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is it the essence of indie pop? Are you oozing indie? You should be from that CV. Yeah, we we um it's it's pretty indie poppy. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying yeah, I'm trying to um yeah, and we all bring a, something a little bit different. Helen writes as well. So we've got three writers in the band. Um and uh it's going to be interesting. Um because what we've done up to now has mostly been play yeah, well, pretty much been playing, you know, the the old Chesterfield stuff, which is great to play. Um so this is uh going to be quite a quite a change bringing in some some new stuff, but I I think it's going to fit yeah. Well, Ask Johnny D is still one of the the classics of our time, isn't it? It's fantastic. We played that in New York and um, I couldn't believe, you know, it was a packed place in Brooklyn and I couldn't believe the reception it got. It was quite emotional. I just thought, I can't believe these people know this song this well and love it this much. You know? Yeah. No, and we also played the Caretaker Race song. We played Anywhere But Home by the Caretaker Race and they knew that as well. So you can never underestimate your crowd, even when you go thousands of miles to play to them yeah well I think actually I don't know when I was young I always wanted to discover bands not just that you know like even old bands you know seem to have been missed and I remember being obsessed with a band called Spirit with Randy California on guitar oh, yeah. and um, you know it was like my god and no one knows this band apart from me living in the village which is great for your social life isn't it because frankly it's a conversational cul-de-sac and yeah. um but you know i still love that and i could imagine you know in a nice you know and john peel used to have the same thing he thought there'd be one person in, in in their bedroom listening to him and he was kind of his whole show and the reason for doing it was thinking this one 
slightly nerdy person would be just enjoying it so much. I was like, yes, that could be me. And, um, yeah. you know, and I could imagine people wanting to listen to like The Loft or The Sidleys or any of those really obscure bands like The Chesterfield. Because mm. you feel kind of excited. You think, God, I have just discovered a new band. Okay, they're 40 years old. But, you know, it's kind of, you know, you, you have that personal relationship with them, don't you? You do. And, and obviously these days with social media, you can you can reach them. So the, the number of people that have responded positively to us, you know, on Instagram and Twitter and all the rest of it, who've, who've, who've this, this new compilation is the first time some of them have ever heard of The Loft or heard the records by The Loft. And it's amazing to get some of the feedback, you know. Yes, because on Instagram, your, um, whoever runs your Insta uh, Chesterfield's page is really prolific, aren't they? I'm always looking at that and thinking... Oh, that's Simon who puts up all the, po all the old posters and things. I, I know. And I look at them every day. Well, whenever he puts them up and think, <laughs> I love them. Yeah. yeah, there you go. That's Simon there. Ah, there you are in Brooklyn, New York. So look, <laughs> apart from looking at Instagram, which is very rude, um, if you could have said something to your 16 or 18 year old self, you know, like that bit of wisdom that you'd have thought, mm, yeah, that was kind of good. It might be something you think, yeah, do that because you did it and that was good. But that could have been another thing to have thought about when you were yeah. um, rocking out later. Yeah, I would definitely have said get off the Isle of Wight, which I did. Yes. Um, that was important um, and I probably would have said said uh, listen a bit more and talk a bit less right <laughs> but but you said earlier we should have talked a bit more in the band oh that band definitely yeah but I think sometimes I should have listened to um, generally to what other people were telling me rather than for some reason I had quite a lot of self-belief about you no know, I know the best way to do things and um, I've learned over the years that sometimes other people would know a little bit better or right might well, be worth like, listening to well on that point i i did an interview with a guy who was in a band called bitch mad magnet and he was um you know they had formed and they did one album they were doing the second and he was asked to like actually you're just too much of a pain in the ass and so we, we just would rather get a new guitarist for this and he begged to say look OK, can I just be on this album? But I won't tour because, OK, I kind of accept I'm a bit of a pain in the ass. And he kind of, you know, he kind of was like, I wish I just had sort of listened a bit more and not just, you know, he must have worn yeah. down the rest of the band to be asked to leave, you know, saying. Yeah, I've never been that bad, but, <laughs> but I did I did kind of take over the sort of, the, you know, the, the sort of organisational manager, manager role in the loft, I think. And I think that probably wasn't always the wisest thing, but. I was the one who could drive and I was the one who, you know, seemed to want to make the phone calls and ask Alan for the money and things like that. So it was kind of thrust upon me. Yeah. Well, you were the Johnny Marr of the band, basically. Well, Pete and I, you know, we both played guitar. He played that sort of crazy, interesting style. And I was a bit more um, normal. And, uh, yes. you know, but I remember English. Johnny, I remember Johnny saying that, that he got to that point where he was booking vehicles thinking. Yeah. I shouldn't really be booking the vehicles and doing the admin. I need to be doing something a bit different. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, he, he, yeah, Morrissey lent on him like he tends to lean on everybody, didn't he? And you know, if you sack enough managers, somebody else has got to pick up the phone and all and yes. phone Van Hire, Salford Van Hire, or whatever it was. This is true. But Morrissey's new album coming out—it's been crowdfunded apparently. So. Mm. There you go. Well, we'll we lots to look forward to, though. We won't be. look. I do love this picture of you in the loft, by the way, um, in on in America. Oh, that's great! Yeah, that is yeah, rocking. That, that we, yeah, we were rocking a bit that night. Yeah, that was that was the Chesterfields at the Knitting Factory. That was a really good night. We played with the Primitives. 
Oh, fantastic. Um, New York it's... Pop Fest. That was, that was, um, you were throwing yeah, some shapes great. there, weren't you? That was, that is yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, worrying. I, I, I tend to think I look a little bit like Francis Rossi going for it. There. I have <laughs> to say, there is a Francis. <laughs> that is, that is choir, isn't it, really? <laughs> Fortunately, yeah, Helen's especially, there. Especially so. going head to head with another guitarist who's a woman, which is yeah. I do remember doing a gig with the Loft not that long ago, and Pete, Pete, I think actually it might have been when we were in New York playing, and Pete sort of suddenly shot off to the side of the stage, and at the in, at the end of the song, I said to him, "You all right?" He said, "Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was all looking a bit status quo there for a minute, so I thought I better move out of the way." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. Well, look, thank you ever so much for this, Andy. This has been amazing. And um, if you want, I can always send you the link and you can always Please use do. it. Please do. Yeah. And um, I'll put it up and that'll be fantastic. But great, great. And thank you ever so much and good luck with the Chesterfields and working with, you know, the rest of the band. Yeah, we'll let you know how it's going. And thank you for asking me to uh, chat with you this evening. It's been good. Yeah, it's been brilliant. OK, well, thanks a lot and all the best for the rest of the year. Thanks, David. Yes. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I know, I love leaving that little bit in at the end. I guess it's so fumbly and um, always makes me laugh. And that's, the, and that's what matters. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to the one and only Andy Strickland from The Loft and also the Chesterfields. Did you know that before the interview? You probably didn't. Anyway, look, if you want to know any more information about them, you can Google, Google away. And also Cherry Red Records does you know, have that compilation that we were talking about. Um, that's it. Oh, yes. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. These have all been archived, these interviews. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week and um, stay safe.